0: Welcome to Venn Presents, exploring the depths and riches of the Christian faith. This episode is the next in our conversations with women and men who are passionate about following Christ in the whole of life. We go behind the moments of success and endeavor to talk with remarkable people about their ordinary life
1: with God, at work, rest, and play. As you listen, we hope you'll be able to imagine how the gospel might look in the communities and callings you find yourself in today. Now, over to host Sam Bloor.
0: Welcome to the program. This is the second in this series looking at people in their work and, well, their work and vocation in the broadest sense of the word, looking at some of their family life, looking at the way that they managed to hold everything together and integrate it with their faith. My name's Sam Bloor, and I'm really thrilled today. My guest is Dr. Jin Russell. Jin, great to have you on.
1: It's really good to be here, Sam.
0: <laughs> Jin, you are a community and developmental pediatrician, which is going to need a little bit of unpacking. And we could have put the word consultant before that as well, <laughs> which means you've kind of gone through most of your training and you're now actually heading up teams mm. in that sort of clinical environment? Yes, correct. Now, you've taught me a new phrase uh, when it comes to uh, medical careers. My, my own background is medical. I exited a long time ago and didn't get to anywhere near the stage that, that you've reached. But you, you've talked about a portfolio career. So, um, yeah, just explain a little bit about that. Explain what you're currently doing, and then we might back the bus up a little bit yeah. and talk about how you got there... Going through med school, if those aren't too harrowing uh, years to remember. <laughs> if I
1: don't get PTSD, <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> um, yes, portfolio career. That's a really nice way to explain what I what I do, what my work looks like. Um, there's this emerging concept in medicine around portfolio careers, and it basically means that you have different hats that you wear regularly through the week. So on Mondays and Tuesdays, I work from home on my PhD, which is in paediatric epidemiology with the Growing Up in New Zealand study. On Wednesdays, I work as a public health paediatrician or a community paediatrician with a public health team uh, on the North Shore. And, And my job over there is to advise on the child health strategy for the Auckland region. And then on Thursdays and Fridays, I work as a developmental paediatrician at Starship Children's Health, um, where I see children in clinic who have developmental and behavioural difficulties. Okay, yeah. I also do school clinics. So I go into schools and I see kids in their in their natural environment, <laughs> yeah, as yeah. it were. Yeah. So it's a it's oh, a busy week, but so, really. you sort of nice.
0: imagine a David David Edinburgh voiceover. <laughs> yeah, <happening, isn't laughs> That's right. there they are now. It is actually
1: a bit like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you you are looking at those sorts of behaviors and you're actually wanting to see them in that environment so you're going in you're following a particular child in and looking at them in their school day
1: so i manage a caseload with a couple hundred children and i see them from when they're born if that's when they need us right through till any time between 15 to 18 years of age when they transition into the adult health services yeah
0: I'm going to have to be really careful that I don't just start asking you questions that are super interesting to me and then everyone else <laughs> listening to this just tunes out and we might have to edit some of that out. But just give us some examples of the sorts of children that you would typically see, the ones mm. that would be referred to your service for developmental delay, that sort of thing.
1: Yes. So there are, you know, the children that we see and that I see as part of my team and the developmental paediatric team at Starship are kids who have developmental and behavioural difficulties. Um, So sometimes there is an emerging neurodevelopmental diagnosis or issue such as um, global developmental delay or autism spectrum disorder or ADHD if people know what ADHD is uh, or intellectual disability. Sometimes there are children who have learning difficulties sometimes there are children who have behaviour which is really challenging and we have to figure out why. Yep. 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 I see a lot of families who are incredibly resilient. I also see a lot of families who are incredibly stressed. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it, it, I work within a team of therapists uh, at Starship. We have psychologists, occupational health uh, therapists, um, physiotherapists, speech language therapists, nurses, whole team. and we look after children in the community. Okay. Yeah.
0: That was where my mind was, gonna go. Was yeah. this was sounding really familiar? I've got two siblings that have done clinical psychology. One of them in yeah. uh, you know child and youth um, mental health and dual diagnosis, uh, and then yeah. um, r- recent conversation with a friend in occupational therapy. And this is sounding very familiar. Um, mm working at, at Starship as well. so.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I, I don't know for you know people who are listening how much they, they understand the kind of medical training program, but I basically went through all of medical school here at the University of Auckland yep. and then worked as a junior house surgeon for a couple of years, then went into paediatrics, and after I completed a few years of training in paediatrics, I specialised in uh, a branch of paediatrics which is community paediatrics um, and and so as part of that um, that's where I've learned to look after children who have developmental difficulties right
0: yeah I'll ask you a little bit more about that and particularly how you came to sort of get interested in this portfolio option mm. uh, because you were saying to me um, when we were sort of having some chats in the build up to this that y- you recognised pretty early on that hey I probably don't want to do five days Clinical, but backing up. Did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? How did you even sort of know that you applied to med school?
1: Yeah, I think I did always know that I wanted to be a doctor. Mm. Um, I come from a medical family. Um, my parents went to medical school in Malaysia, um, and Singapore, and then uh, graduated and worked in Singapore, and then came over to Christchurch. And, and okay. actually did all of their training in Christchurch. So my dad is a neuropathologist. Okay. Um, my mum is a general practitioner. Okay. She's still working. Uh, my brother is a rheumatologist. Oh no! <laughs> it's really getting, getting intense. Oh, I mean, it's getting intense. Just, just yeah. feeling
0: like a full house in <laughs> <and> poker.
1: <laughs> and and I'm a paediatrician. And so we used to joke about how in our family, you know, we could look after anybody from birth to, to, grave. To, to postmortem <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a bit maca- you know a bit dark. but um, my family at one point I added it up um, and I worked out that in my immediate family alone, we had over 120 years of doctoring. Service to New Zealand, wow. which is pretty special. Yeah, um, it but is. it's it's also a disaster because at family lunch, you know, we talk shop, and that's terrible for <laughs> my husband, my sister in law, who yes. are not medical.
0: That's right. Yeah, I think that's something that having not practiced for over 15 years now I really love being in those environments because I feel like I get to live some of that interest vicariously through friends and things but Julia just switches right off and so (laughs) (laughs) next time we're somewhere (laughs) with you and Mathis and they can keep each other company and talk about something else we're talking about family both parents being doctors both parents are also Malaysian Chinese Mm. And so that's been you've grown up in New Zealand, uh, with that as your sort of cultural heritage, your, your mm. ethnic heritage. Um, and for Chester and Toby, they're growing up with you know a, again that a, a mixed uh, heritage here in New Zealand. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, the that that journey um, for you, because mm. again there'll be people listening where that's been a journey that they've been on.
1: Yeah, that's right. Cultural identities are complex. Phenomenon, isn't it? Each person makes their own journey in a way. Mm. Um, And I, so I grew up in Wellington. I was born in Wellington. My parents were migrants. They immigrated to Christchurch in the 70s. Um, And um, I really did wrestle with my Chinese heritage for a long time. I I was never very good at speaking Mandarin. My mum put me into Mandarin classes when I was a kid, and I was terrible at it. I think the only Mandarin word that I ever learnt was the word for watermelon, which is shikwa. <laughs> in case you're wanting to know um, but that was kind of just a reminder of a failure for me that mm-hmm. not being able to speak Mandarin was sort of like a failure that I couldn't I couldn't overcome, I just couldn't make the sounds the right way and I actually asked my mum at some stage to take me out of Chinese classes and I promised her, I said if you take me out of Chinese classes I'll get really good at English <laughs> which I been tried to do. Um but then, you know, later on as a teenager, um, I read works by Chinese authors. One of the authors that I read was Yong Chang, who wrote the book *Wild Swans*. Yes, this yeah, is an insider's uh, yeah. Yeah, um, it's harrowing. <laughs> it's harrowing. It's a historical. It's a biography of her father and the story of how her father progressed through the you know early. Um, how, you know, early on in Mao Zedong's rule, um, what happened there and what happened in the Cultural Revolution. And it is... It's devastating, isn't it? Yes, a it is, yeah. Mm. yeah. And I read that, and I was devastated, I think. As as someone with Chinese heritage, reading about what had happened in my home country was devastating to me. The things... the. Um, the, the violence, the cruelty, the, um, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah we won't go on to all that, yes, will we? Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, so it really impacted upon me to the extent where it actually emotionally severed the connection that I had to my Chinese heritage for some time. Okay. And in fact, um, that, that, that meant that I had a very complex relationship, you know, to my Chinese heritage for a while. And I understand when I hear, for instance, Māori, mm-hmm speaking about maybe embarrassment or shame that they feel if they can't speak te reo. I understand the sense that Māori might feel if they feel disconnected from their own culture despite being of Māori descent. I understand that because that's what I'd felt for a long time and to some extent still feel actually. Um, Whenever I look after a patient who speaks Mandarin and looks at me hopefully, expecting me to speak back. I feel like I let them down. Um, But more recently, I was able to make my peace with it somewhat. My mum and I took a trip to China. We went to Beijing, and um, she knows her Chinese history through and through. She's fluent in three different languages. And going around with my mum and seeing... Some of the things I hadn't encountered before, you know, seeing the yes. best of Beijing, I felt a sense of pride in my Chinese heritage, which I hadn't felt, and I've been holding on to that ever since. Wonderful. Mm. Yeah.
0: Is that something that you're looking for ways for Chester and Toby to just, you know, ex- expose them to mm. a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, cultures really live and breathe through families, don't they? So, yes, I speak to them about their Chinese heritage. Um, I try and get them to spend time with mum, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that they get a bit of that from her. Um, yeah, but it is. I mean, it's a. It's something that I think I have to be really intentional about, actually, mm. if it's going to last.
0: Yeah. Mm. Oh, thanks, Jen. That's yeah, beautiful to have you describe it in that way. So, fast forwarding to as you were doing that pediatric training. And you're starting to realise that maybe five days in clinic wasn't going to quite cut it. How, how, what, what did you start to recognise in yeah, your own experience? Then.
1: experience? Yeah, mm. Yes, so I had already done a few years of paediatric training and I was working as a junior doctor, as a registrar, at um, Kids First Hospital, which is at Middlemore Hospital. So I was working in South Auckland and... Um, I was you know, doing really well at paediatrics, I was mastering it, I've always enjoyed seeing kids and families, I've always enjoyed clinical medicine. Uh, but I started to become curious about the bigger picture of health, started to ask questions. Um, I wanted to know what were the factors that were driving the same children to come into ED again and again. Right. Yeah. And it felt a little bit like, you know, when I was walk- working in the emergency department that the ED was like a revolving door of illness, okay. that kids would come in, they'd be sick, we'd fix them up, send them home, and then they'd come back in again. Um, and I wanted to understand uh, why that was and what were the social determinants of health, but also what were the social determinants of child development. And I think that question really took me in a very different direction um, to my cohort of trainees, and that's when I decided to, to step out of clinical medicine for a period of time and to pursue a PhD.
0: And what's that PhD been in, and has it changed <laughs> along the way?
1: <laughs> yeah, so actually it hasn't changed along the way, and right. uh, yeah, oh, the, the question that I took into the PhD is the question that I have looked at my phd is in a field of epidemiology and i'll unpack all of these terms it's a field called life course epidemiology or pediatric it's it's closely related to pediatric epidemiology okay. um, and i'm attached to the growing up in new zealand study which is the the country's largest child and family study it's the most diverse study and it's contemporary so the children are now 12 years old and there's almost 7,000 of them that our growing up in new zealand team are following up
0: wow. That's a that's a big study. It's hey, a like, big study. When I think of the one that was really, everyone was talking about when I went through med school, which I think might have even been slightly before you, yes. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. um, but was the, the one out of Christchurch, what was that one called? Yeah, the, um,
1: the 1970s Christchurch study. And yeah. then there was also the Dunedin study. They've yeah. been extremely successful studies. I, I think this is something that most New Zealanders don't know, but actually New Zealand has a reputation internationally for producing excellent epidemiologists and also for, for doing these kinds of life course studies where we, we follow the health and development of people over the lifespan. Um, and so those studies, uh, well the Dunedin study for instance, groundbreaking, world leading study that's been going since the 1970s, it has a thousand people in it. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, our uh, Growing Up in New Zealand study has almost 7,000 children. When, in the year when the, the children were recruited, when the, the mums, because we, they, we recruited antenatally, yes. when the mums were recruited, we recruited a third of the birth cohort that year. So a third of all of the children who were born in New Zealand that year. That That's a pretty good sample it's size. A hey? good sample <laughs> size <yeah. laughs>
0: wow. And so what were the, what were the questions you were specifically interested in within Ooh. that, within that um, study? Because I imagine yes. lots of PhDs have come out of that.
1: that yes, study. absolutely yeah. What I was noticing when I was working at Middlemore Hospital was that not only was, were factors in children's early environment such as you know socioeconomic disadvantage or poverty, They were affecting children's health outcomes. Children who are in poverty tend to be at risk of being admitted more to hospital. They have difficulty accessing health care. They tend to be admitted more for skin infections and pneumonia and asthma and rheumatic fever and all of these things. We, I think this is well known. But what I observed and what I later learnt from looking at the international evidence was that these socioeconomic factors were also affecting children's development their cognitive development, their language development, their emotional, social, behavioural development. I was concerned about that, and I wanted to understand whether those trends that we were seeing overseas in the, in the evidence overseas were playing out here in Aotearoa. And that's what led me to do the PhD. So in my PhD, I have looked at how socioeconomic position – in early childhood, affects a child's developmental trajectory over the first five years of their life.
0: And so as you've gone on with this and you're starting to analyse your own findings, are things starting to take shape? Are they starting to form, solidify, coagulate, <laughs> to use a medical <laughs> term, uh, into things that you can say, ah, we can actually see this now and we can, we can make recommendations based on these sorts of things?
1: Well, I think the major finding of my PhD, which I'm writing up now, is that what happens in the early years for children uh, intensely matters for the rest of their lives. Yes. Um, That what I found was that children's developmental outcomes, so how good their language, cognitive development, their learning outcomes, their early social development, how well they fare in the first five years of life is very dependent on the level of wealth of their family or the level of advantage or disadvantage, if you want to look at it that way. And what that means is that, you know, if we as a society are serious about putting our children's future first, we need to invest in young families. We need to invest in the first 2,000 days of children's lives, you know, in that early preschool area. Um, And in terms of the OECD, New Zealand is sort of sits in the average mark in terms of (laughs) our investment in early childhood. Yes. But if we really want to do our best for children, we need to look at how we can support their development and how we can close those gaps so that no matter where in the country you're born or what level of wealth your family experience, you have the opportunity to fulfil your developmental potential.
0: And so what are some of the difficulties associated with that? What are some of the difficulties with actually getting into those areas, into those areas um, hard to reach places
1: mm.
0: and making the sort of difference that you're now seeing is is, is vital in that time
1: mm. yeah so I think one thing that you learn when you do a PhD is that you start off with a hypothesis and a clear idea of where it's going to go and then as you go and you learn more you experience the Dun-Krug, Dunning-Kruger curve <laughs> and you you find that it becomes a lot more complicated I mean the the idea that, for instance, if we just alleviated income poverty, household income poverty, that we would somehow fix all of this for children, um, that that's too simplistic, right. you know. So poverty is an incredibly important, arguably the most well-researched determinant of children's health. By determinant, I mean predictor, predictor yes. of children's health and development. Um, and i would absolutely love to have fewer children experiencing poverty in the country but we can't stop there we also know that it's about the family environment that children are in it's what they experience of the their the parents the the fano members that are in their lives the trusted adults in their lives and other children in their lives those relationships make make or break people yes. right yeah so What's really difficult about that is it's hard to fix that with pov- uh, policy. Okay, yes. <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to imagine what can we do to lift the level of warmth and affection within the home um, yes. so that children thrive. Yeah. That's that's the hard bit.
0: You mentioned the Dunn and Kruger curve. Yeah. What, what's there?
1: <laughs> oh, so that's... um that's just, uh, the idea that um, you start off when you when you have no knowledge um, you know you you have low confidence right. but then, what, what they've found is if you learn a little bit, your confidence just soars. Sort of <laughs> I think <laughs> disproportionate. I know where this is going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, your confidence isn't properly tethered to the level of knowledge that you have. But then as you progress in your knowledge further, your confidence actually goes down again. It
0: plummets, somewhere. plummets again <laughs> because
1: you're really realising the complexity. And then yes. finally, you know, when you have really mastered a field, your confidence Recovers somewhat, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) But never to the dizzying heights that you had (laughs) when you knew just a little bit. And I see this on social media all the time.
0: (laughs) Oh, we're going to get to social media in a moment. Yeah. Oh, look, I've I know that curve well. I've just never known what to call it. So thank you, Jen. So the word epidemiology has come up already. Just explain that to us so that people understand what you're doing as an epidemiologist. And mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's funny because, you know, over the last two years of the pandemic, I feel like I've, I've had to explain epidemiology less now, but <laughs> happy to again. Um, epidemiology is the study of the distribution of health and disease across a population. Okay, yeah. So when you're at medical school and you're training to be a doctor, and when you're doctoring, you're generally dealing with one person at a time or one fano at a time, the yes. person who's in front of you, that's what you're applying your medical knowledge. You know, that's where you're applying your medical knowledge. You're trying to get a win for one person. Epidemiology is the study of how disease plays out across a population group. And for me, what this means for me as a developmental and community pediatrician is epidemiology is really, I, I'm looking at epidemiology as, you know, how... Uh, how are developmental outcomes distributed for children across the population? Okay. And then the next part of epidemiology is to try and understand what drives that distribution. Okay. Right? Yeah. So what are the determinants or the predictors of that distribution? And there is a field of epidemiology, um, which is known as the social determinants of health, which looks at those factors in a rigorous way.
0: You're mentioning there sort of two words that have become a bit more familiar, one being epidemiology. And yeah, I think people are starting to flesh out their own understanding of it. But the other one you mentioned, actually, the, the pandemic, COVID-19. We can't put this off forever in the interview. Jin, let's come to that because it really <laughs> yes. has been something of a, of a flashpoint for you in terms of bringing a number of these threads together. And we've put this in the, the blurb to this podcast, but, you know, you've become a household face. And a really a, a a spokesperson, and I've got to say, having caught only a handful of the several hundred interviews that you've done now across various media platforms, you're just such a calm presence, uh, such a clear uh, and concise uh, way of putting things. It's really been uh, quite quite awesome to sort of see that that door open up. Do you want to tell us how that happened? how that door sort of flung wide open mm. and then the benefits of having somebody with your background and experience speaking into mm. policy at this level.
1: Yeah, lovely. I mean, it's it's new for me too, Sam, and this is a good chance to reflect <laughs> on everything that's happened in the last several months because I have been very busy. Um, you know, if we go back a couple of years, um, uh, I first got into commentating on COVID and, um, with my epidemiology hat on. Um, There are only a handful of paediatric epidemiologists in the country. (laughs) And um, early on in the pandemic, I realised that even though children are the least affected from infection, if you think about acute health impacts, such as hospitalisation and deaths, children tend to do the best, right, out of any age group in in the population. Um, But what we could easily see, looking from a child's lens, is that the pandemic was going to massively disrupt and impact children. Yes. And <laughs> so... School closures, yes. parents
0: being home... Yes, um, stress on the families. Lockdown life. The lockdowns,
1: absolutely. <clears throat> and so even though children might have experienced, you know, the, the, the lightest burden from infection itself they would go on to be a really impacted group, um, group in the population. And so I felt that it was important at that time, and this is going back maybe a year and a half now, I felt it was important that we talk about children and their needs. Um, And so I started to commentate, write op-eds and really where where it really took off was around the school response.
0: At last count, how many interviews had you done across sort of TV and radio?
1: Oh, I don't know how many interviews, but um, the Science Media Centre did a report for me. uh, And I think I had something like over 500 media appearances um, between, and and most of them between October and March of this year, Sam. So So, in that six-month period? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I think at its peak, you know, I would be doing clinic and I would take calls around patients um, or after I'd seen patients in clinic, um, talking to journalists um, and just really trying to get the best kind of COVID-19 response for children.
0: Yeah, I certainly have experienced that personally. Uh, You and I are both on the Parenting Place board and we'll talk a bit about your involvement there. You've been on it much longer than I have but you would sort of disappear off a board meeting zoom call just do a quick interview with Radio New Zealand and then
1: sort of be back back with us <laughs> yeah, just my...
0: <laughs> completely unfazed un, by it all my
1: colleagues have um, laugh about this now yeah um, but the 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 thing is that I don't actually find talking to the media um as stressful as other people do okay. early on I sort of and I feel this way about politicians as well okay if I could just be really candid I mean the journalists politicians health chiefs whoever yep. you're talking to yes. are just ordinary people right. they're just people and I determined early on that the way to speak to journalists was to understand that they're intelligent they're committed and they're knowledgeable and rather than trying to give journalists little sound bites, you know, my three core messages um, and trying to manipulate the, the, what came out like that, what I would do is just try to explain to them my position uh, and so that my position would help shape their story. Great. And I yeah. found that a much more satisfying relationship to the media than uh, most of what media training had, had told us to do. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just talking to people like they're, you know, intelligent, ordinary people. And allowing
0: that to unfold a bit and them to interact with what it is that you're telling them.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because I found that when journalists understood what I was trying to say and also the values, what was driving it, um, they really got it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's ultimately more helpful to the media, I think, um, than an expert trying to give sound bites.
0: You've also had a strategy for approaching social media. Tell me a little bit about that, because this is where, particularly around COVID, things got really interesting.
1: That's right. So I um, started using Twitter several years ago. I really like Twitter, actually, because, yeah, well, I saw a tweet once. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a tweet once that said, about a third of you guys out there in Twitter, you know, about a third of you guys are uh, interesting to me. What you write is interesting and sort of stimulating to me. Another third of you make me laugh, and there's another third of you I just wish would disappear. <laughs> you have to put up with the dumpster fire that is social media. But I like Twitter. Um, I like it because there are a lot of academics, there are a lot of physicians on Twitter. I really enjoy getting to um, see almost live time uh, people who are really at the top of their game, at the top of their disciplines. See their thinking emerge in lifetime. See what literature, what evidence, what studies they're looking at. That's what I really enjoy about Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, in terms of a strategy around it and for interacting with some of the third that shall remain unnamed.
1: The (laughs) (laughs) dubstifier accounts, yeah.
0: Yeah, so you've you've had a strategy for how you interact there as well. I've followed some of your Facebook interactions with people. Uh, I mean, you're you're as marvellous as you are live in an interview, Jen, there. You're just very, very uh, gracious, um, always an informed response, uh, sending people to information that will help to inform them, help to maybe push back on some angle that they are promoting or, or really pushing. How have you approached that? What oh. sort of rules of engagement have you written <laughs> for yourself?
1: Yes, so I, I can speak to that in two ways. Um, so firstly, I decided early on that I would be myself. On social media on Twitter and on Facebook I'm myself so um, the person that you encounter at Starship Children's Hospital who's your health professional your child's pediatrician is the same person that you're going to meet on social media Um, and that's really important to me that I was not an anonymous account actually but I did that I I decided to be myself on Twitter for accountability reasons that if uh, you know I wanted to be the kind of voice in the public sphere that was safe so, you know, even if somebody disagreed with me, even if someone's on the opposite end of the political spectrum from me, I needed them to feel that if they came into my clinic room with their child the next day, that they would be safe with me as a person. Great. And that feeds into the second sort of, set of rules of engagement you said, Sam, <laughs> um, I have studied a book called Nonviolent Communication. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> it's by a guy called Michael B. Rosenberg, and he was a negotiator, reconciliations and negotiation and mediation in Israel-Palestine okay. back in the day, Yeah, and did this at a very high level. And he wrote a book called Nonviolent Communication, which is really unpacking the syntax of how to communicate your thoughts and feelings to other people in such a way that it respects them Uh, and then also how to receive someone's communication to you even if it's aggressive or angry or violent or whatever it is in such a way that hears and attends to what they're trying to say and respects them. Now, it's an intense way of doing communication. And obviously, I don't respond to all of the thousands (laughs) of (laughs) dumpster fire accounts (laughs) who have a go at me on social media or or even everybody who disagrees in good faith. You don't have energy to do that. But when I do engage with people on social media, I Mm. like to think of it as um, me practicing Mm. that form of communication.
0: Well, that approach seems to be working Jin, not only in social media but across media in general Uh, you've got quite a fan base i saw you tweet that somebody that you'd worked with 11 years ago had actually sent you a wonderful message saying how she'd seen you on tv and john campbell's a fan uh, as well and (laughs) some of his introductions (laughs) we might even see if we can play one here let's see if i've got that here in the archive Dr. Jen Russell has written about this with her usual intelligence, insight and rigour in a piece of the spin-off and we're delighted as we always are to have her with us this morning. Dr. Russell is a developmental paediatrician acclaimed for her work at Starship and her research at the University of Auckland and we're thrilled to have you with us Dr. Russell Morty how are you? Oh so there we go, there's a, an example <laughs> that, of one of John's that introductions. And <laughs> that would go both ways Sam, that
1: would go both ways. I'm a fan of John Campbell too.
0: Yeah and I th- think on one of them we weren't able to get this one but didn't he didn't you guys joke about it and then he did an even <laughs> more effusive introduction the next time
1: yes so i was joking with john campbell teasing him about the fact that his introductions of me on live television were getting more and more extravagant and less tethered to reality <laughs> shall we say <laughs> and so we really went to town this one time with with breakfast tv
0: already we've included several factors here that would make most people tremble at the very thought of them interacting with media some really challenging areas of pediatrics Uh, a PhD that you're juggling um, family life which we haven't got to yet but we're going to soon Uh, and maybe this will be part of the, uh, the the answer to this question but what sustains you uh, through that what how are you able to to, to to do all of this what are you drawing on so that you don't wake up in the morning and go oh man the the, the bleakness of child poverty in New Zealand the fact that I've got uh, mm. a hugely uh, busy week coming up including some uh, perhaps uh, interactions or, or conflicts maybe even that I have to have within that environment the the, the media interactions
1: mm.
0: what have you tapped into there?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I think, um, you know, the the, the major um, sustaining factor for me <laughs> through all of this is, I think, a kind of sense of calling, mm-hmm. a sense of passion um, that meets my skill set um, and a genuine desire that I've carried for a long time to make a very, you know, to make the best contribution that I can towards children in this country. So there's there's a desire to serve... Children to serve families, um, and I think um, when you know when you have a, a desire to make a contribution for something that's outside of yourself, that actually sustains you. Um, when things become difficult, when things are when there's complexity, um, when there's you know um, uncertainty and disagreement, I go back to the idea that you know what would best best serve my community or. Epidemiologically, <laughs> what would best serve this population, um, and that sustains me and continues to uh, give me energy and keep me curious. Right. Yeah. Great. Um, but the other thing is, you know, I've described Sam this portfolio career, where in uh, any you know single week, I'm moving between different spaces, different teams, and having different sorts of interactions with research, with public health, and strategy with clinical medicine. Each of those has its own provocations, and that creates a synergy. They're all interconnected and they have synergy for me. It means that throughout the week, at least Monday to Friday, I am thinking about child health and development from different angles.
0: Right. I find yep.
1: that really energising. So the, the thing that I've done throughout um, my career at least, and I'll get on to the home life in a second, um, but the thing that I've done in my career is just consistently gone after the activities uh, and the thinking that, has, that I've had energy for. Right. And I think that this has become a rule of mine, that I won't pick up something. Unless I can, I have energy for it. Um, And so, you know, then on the home life, I have, uh, I have some good chats with God. It's usually the lights are (laughs) off, my head hits the pillow, I just talk to Him for a little bit. I say, most of the time, I'm just sort of saying to Him, "Am I doing okay? (laughs) You know, am I doing all right?" Yeah, yeah. Um, And I find that. That honest chat at the end of the day is probably one of the best things. And I, in that, those few moments before, you know, the lights go off for me, um, I feel his presence, his affirmation of me, his love for me that um, keeps me going. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I am busy. I don't uh, don't sort of um, try and hide this. I don't do the kind of, um, you know, the the deep prayer, the contemplation, the meditation, which I have done at different times of life. And the way that I reason this out is that there was a season for those things. There was a season in my life in my twenties when God very deliberately seemed to lead me into a, a, a sort of a time of lot of prayer, deep prayer, and a lot of prayer over the future. And the image that I had at that time was that I was digging wells. Mm. And in this season of my life where things are busy mm. um, and I have young children as well, um, the image is one of being sustained by the wells that I dug. So, you know, maybe at each stage of life, what it looks like to me to to be sustainable is to make sure that I'm in step with yes. the spirit, what mm. he's what God is asking me to do at each phase of my life and it's been different yes. at each phase yes mm.
0: yeah that's a, I mean I, I, I love that, that a couple of other areas where I've been having conversations similar to this the the phrases come up just that the prayer being that friendship with God that that, that Relationship, they keep in company with God, and so your question, "Am I doing okay?" Just beautiful. I think early on in my Christian walk, I thought a sign of maturity would be asking that question less and less as I went on, because I should, know it. but I found mm. it's the opposite. I yep. now ask that way more often. Am yes. I doing okay? Sweet. Okay. Okay. Yes. One foot in front of the other. Keep going. Keep going. That's, <laughs> That's right. a beautiful picture, uh, Jen, of just coming to the end of a busy day, and being graced for the capacity that you're doing. You know, I, I. Look at your life sometimes and, you know, I'm, I'm a little n- intimidated, to be honest, when I see the <laughs> oh amount that no. you do, when I see the amount that yeah. you and Matheson uh, do as a, as a couple of Jules and I are often like, wow, I don't know how they do it. But there's a grace for it because I think you're doing it in obedience and you're you're listening along the way, you're being discerning. Yeah, and so we'll, I'm, we'll get to Matheson <laughs> in, a, in yeah. a moment and how you guys yeah. juggle that.
1: I mean, I'm living out that verse, aren't I? That, you know, my burden is easy. My yeah, yeah. That that ha, that verse has been true for me, mm. um, and I trust um, that. I trust. I trust him. I trust that if I was not to do something, or that it was getting too much, that he would help me. You know, um, that's the kind of relationship we're in. Um, I think. Uh, I think of this as a season. And I'll do as much as I can do in this season. Um, but you know, it. I think it's really important that as, as I as I've gotten deeper into this career, and um, you know, the more it looks, the more important it becomes to actually check in with God and to be accountable to Him, because you see the thing is um, that you know, my whole life I've been in settings where. Achievement has been the goal. My school motto was ad summa, which means in Latin, aim to the highest. You can imagine the kind of (laughs) (laughs) environment that I was in at school. It was uh, competitive and academic and had a culture of achievement. Mm. The universities are hugely organised around achievement. You know... and it's got to be visible. It's got to be visible achievement, funding, outputs. Yes. You know. The hospital system as well, medicine is like this. It's hierarchical and it's intense. And at its most senior levels, it's competitive yes. as well, which is not what you'd really expect in healthcare. care. <laughs> um, so I have had to learn to pay attention to what God's asking of me, because what what achievement looks like for other people is not necessarily what he's asking me to do. And I've learnt to kind of aim for excellence rather than just blind success, right. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. You mentioned that word excellence before we actually started recording this and you made the distinction between that and perfection too. Mm. That that can be saw Colleagues of mine, when I was back doing medicine, where yeah. that was that was really difficult for them to hit that day after day. And if you've got that streak in you, it becomes pretty tough.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This I think perfectionism is a risk factor for burnout. Actually, and we see a lot of burnout in healthcare. I'm sure it's the same in other high octane disciplines. Um, we see a lot of burnout. And so I think we have to shift from aiming for perfection, success and achievement to, you know, aiming for excellence. If that's what you're grace to do, if that's your jam, you know, <laughs> um, if that's your jam, then I'd say to people aim for excellence. Um, and the other thing is, you know, coming looping back to what I was saying at the start of this question, if you're aiming for excellence for others, for other people, for me it's for children in Aotearoa, then that is also, I think, is you know makes you resilient, um, protects you from getting burnt out and getting cynical.
0: One of the other things that I realised as I was printing out your bio was just how much, and I went to your Auckland University bio, and the bullet points are all there. And I showed you this just before we walked into the studio, and you said what the bullet points don't show are that it's nowhere near that linear. So talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And again, this feeds into the idea of the achievement culture. You know, recently I gave a lecture to uh, medical students um, and we were talking about the Sam. I gave a lecture to medical students talking about my career in public health and also clinical medicine and research. And, you know, before I got up to speak, they were very gracious and a medical student got up and read my bio out And I sort of turned to the medical students and I started off by saying, look, I'm not so senior that I'm used to people reading out a reel of my achievements before I start speaking actually we shouldn't do that every time we read out someone's achievements i think we should be reading out a couple of failures as well because that's right. that's yes. real you yeah, know like we should yeah. be celebrating and owning and admiring people's failures because failure means that you've tried something and you've probably learned from that and you're still going yes. so yes. yeah i'd say yeah and i'm very grateful to you sam for not trying to do that with this podcast actually <laughs> um,
0: well look there's, there's plenty there <laughs> if you, you know if you tuned in um it was a bit of an again a bit of an intimidating list including the number of distinctions that you got in your final year of uh the medical program uh, Jin, where there's there's more here listed than I even remember doing and so you've managed to uh, to top them all and there's been various awards along the way so you know I do I do want to acknowledge and honor that Jin, that you're somebody who's very very gifted and also works incredibly hard so mm. yeah there's a there's a gratitude that I feel towards you and and people like you, if that's not too much of a sort of but people <laughs> yeah. who have dedicated themselves uh, to to really doing this to a to a high standard. Maybe not to perfection, because you know you you need to be able to go home at the end of the day knowing that you did the best that you could. But that this has really been part of what we've seen in the last two years of these doors opening. And if I can, just as we transition a little to Mathis and catching up with him. Uh, recently at a barbecue and him just saying you know this last year or so has felt like you've had the Midas touch that everything you've touched has turned to gold and he didn't mean that from an achievement point of view and you, you you sort of know that but he was just saying it's just been remarkable actually watching you really take off and do this and be seeing things and almost like seeing gaps that others weren't seeing and seeing things that just needed to be done in in doing them and doing a great job of them so that to me was was awesome on a number of levels not least of which it was really refreshing to hear someone talk about their spouse in that way it's kind of quite neat
1: yeah it's nice and this is this is where we can marry up that idea of you know having a career that hasn't been linear um with you know Matheson my quite lovely and amazing husband, um, who is Australian, but we don't hold that against them. Um, you know, Matheson is um, is is just an absolute rock at home. And right. his consistency, his gentleness, his patience, and his time for me um, has been amazing. And so a lot of the things, you know, if you want to talk about what I've done over the last year, I really have to give credit to him for supporting me all of the way. I think it's um, you know when I met him, he had to explain to me what feminist philosophy was. <laughs> <laughs> I should explain for the audience that um, you know, my husband Matheson is a philosopher at Auckland University. He's a social and political philosopher. Uh, and he has uh, there are parts of his courses which teach feminist um, philosophers, actually. And so it's quite remarkable. I sort of just happened to, and I didn't marry him because he taught feminist philosophy, but happened to just stumble upon a guy who felt that what, you know, that my career mattered to him, that my flourishing in all spheres of life mattered to him. And I'd say the same for him. As a couple, we talk about having seasons um, there's a season for me and there'll be a season for him. And it might go back and forth like that as if we're passing the baton between each other. Yes. So I think it's really important to kind of as much as I'm listening to God and trying to stay in step with the spirit, actually tuning into Matheson and figuring out what's going to help him flourish right now. you know. And um, and at the moment, there's energy and there's sort of wind um Uh, behind my sales for the things that I'm trying to do so let's go there that's fine he's supporting me all the way Um, but those things shift I think for couples over time as well and there's seasons Um, you know when um, when uh, someone gives more at home or when someone's putting more into work and you kind of have to feel those out I think as a couple Yes.
0: You've got two boys, mm. Chester and Toby. Yep, seven and five. Yeah, is that
1: right? Seven yeah,
0: and five. Seven and five. You were telling me just after Toby was about twelve months old. Was it just a little younger?
1: Mm. You
0: were going through a pretty rough time there, and that's really that was a bit of a pivotal pivotal yeah. time. So
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love to talk about this because I think this makes it real. Um, you know, I juggle a lot of portfolios, but after Toby was born, I almost I felt like I almost lost them all. Uh, and that was just 4 years ago. Um, you know, he uh, nothing prepares you for being a parent. Even being a pediatrician doesn't prepare <laughs> you for being a parent. Oh no. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> every parent
0: and pr- prospective parent's heart just sank a little bit. Right. <laughs> I mean, we
1: had we had Chester Chester's seven. He was a great sleeper. He was a very easygoing baby. And then Toby just knocked us for six. He, um, he was a terrible sleeper and, um, and he's better now. But, um, you know, I had, we had a really tough time with him in his first year. And at the end of that first year after Toby was born, I was, I was thinking I might try and go back to work now. I'd taken a year of maternity leave. And, um, and at that time, I was a, I was still enrolled in my you know enrolled in my PhD, and I was trying to do my PhD, but I really couldn't see how I was going to keep doing clinical medicine on the side of yes. this PhD. At that point in time, I hadn't finished my pediatric training. And so I was out there in PhD land, doing my PhD, and it felt a little bit like wandering around in the desert, to be honest, like trying to, you know, come up, like trying to, trying to finish a PhD was a bit like wandering around in the desert. And I, um, I needed to find a way to keep doing paediatrics, even if it was just a couple of clinics a week or one clinic a week. And I tried knocking on lots of doors. Now, the thing is... In medicine, if you want to work in medicine, most of the jobs require you to do long days working till 10 p.m., night shifts Mm. in the hospital for days on end, weekends. And now that I had two children and a child who didn't sleep, um, it was just impossible to think how I would do that. So I really felt like I was at a loose end. And then this is the thing, I think, Sam, we were talking about this before, just God just really came through for me then. So one night I was putting Toby to sleep and I was praying for him, you know, as you do, when I was putting him into the cot. And then as I was praying for him, I just, I f- started to pray for myself. I'd been having anxiety and I think I'd even had panic attacks, realising that I could do the PhD, but I was starting to lose paediatrics. Uh, and I didn't want that, but I couldn't see how I could possibly go back to working in the hospital And do night shifts and long days and weekends with a child who didn't sleep. And I was so exhausted. And as I was praying for Toby, I felt God say to me, I'm going to make a way for you. And I had this image come to me where I saw waters parting, Mm. um, like the Red Sea parting, (laughs) that kind (laughs) of image. And myself just walking through that um, and God saying, I'm going to make a way for you. And I felt this peace come and the panic attacks went away. Mm -hmm. And two days later, I got a call completely out of the blue from Starship. And one of the directors there said, would you like to come and do two clinics for us just two days a week, Mm -hmm. if that's all you can manage. Um, This has never happened to us before, but a registrar has pulled out of their clinic rotation and we really need someone now. And it was absolutely amazing. And so I stepped into this part-time clinical role, and that was the beginning of the portfolio career, as yeah, it were. Yeah. I stepped into this part-time clinical role, and I completed my training through that. Yeah, wow. that's how it happened. And, and basically, um, for the audience, because I assume most people listening aren't medical, this never happens. Sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And particularly the the part time aspect of it, meaning that you could yeah, do it, <laughs> <that's right. laughs> even though the sleep deprivation wasn't going to go away <laughs> uh, o- overnight, as yeah. it were. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I, I think
0: those are those are the other things that sometimes we wish we could put into our bios without them being weird eh? you know yeah, um, totally. was comforted by God when sleep deprived um, you know, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> way was made way was made clear um, I almost lost the moment. plot Yes, uh, in,
1: in 2013 and then <laughs> no I think that's right and I think this is what the hyper achievement culture that a lot of us are in or even the pressure that we put on ourselves to just become a li- sort of a list of achievements it it, it glosses over all of these moments of uncertainty and of doubt. You know, I almost left paediatrics and when I almost left paediatrics to go into public health, actually, in yes. 2012. You know, I was telling you earlier, Sam, about being at Middlemore Hospital and seeing the kids go in and out and just thinking, yeah, yeah. what is driving this cycle of disease and illness? What are the factors that are leading to this? At that point in time before I went into the PhD, I almost stepped out completely to go into public health. And I had I sought the advice of about twenty people then. I went and had coffee, paid for coffee for lots of people. <laughs>
0: it's one of the one of the upsides of medicine, isn't it? it, it really yeah. is you do feel like you're part of a well, I mean it's literally the, 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 the college of you you're part of a, a fellowship amongst others. You're apprenticed into it in ways that are always available to you mm. to go and have those coffees people are busy you sometimes have to nag them a bit to get the coffee but it's yeah, it's, but a it's a wonderful family. kind of you you just said family mm. in that
1: way yeah it's a family i reached out to lots of people in public health and pediatrics and academia in public health uh, on the ground and spoke to them and got some advice and you know i think that's the thing is you know that doesn't come out in you know when I remember back, the journey wasn't always so straight and it was filled with moments where I just thought, am I doing the right thing? <laughs> am I doing the right thing, Lord? Yeah.
0: In some ways, I'm less trusting of people who have never asked that question than I am of people who ask it regularly, Jin, but how was it answered in that time through the having, having coffees and things? I'm...
1: So before I had that moment where God said to me really clearly, I'm gonna make a way for you. Mm. There had been over a decade of uncertainty for me, just day in, day out, not knowing if I was doing the right thing. That doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy medicine, I've always enjoyed medicine, or Mm. that I didn't enjoy pediatrics, I always enjoyed it. And I was always feeling like I was making progress and mastering things, but I'd always had this sense of uncertainty. Because of these other parts of my brain, the, the the you know the curiosity that I had about these other questions, um, and um, that uncertainty was just a real just a tent just a big part of my existence for about a decade, um, and um, and over that time the thing that helped the most actually was talking about the uncertainty with people, wow. just letting people into that. Yeah. Um, it was really important just to break down those walls and talk about, hey, I actually don't know if I'm doing the right thing in where I am, whether I've got the right job, whether I've got the you know, whether my skill set is fully tapped here. Having those conversations was probably the best thing I did.
0: That's got to be reassuring for people listening whether they're in medicine or not, I think.
1: Yeah, well, I think it would be remiss of me to sort of, present to someone who just has it all together now as if there was no <laughs> any doubt I mean there's been more and un- more years of uncertainty uh for me since I graduated from you know well since I left school basically than I have had certainty but God over that time you know you when I was younger I used to ask God am I doing the right thing like am I doing the right thing in pediatrics and you never get an answer. Well, I didn't get a clear answer at any point. God never said to me, do this and then do this and then go overseas then and then come back. He never said that. All he would say was, learn who I am and learn to trust me. And that's completely unsatisfying when you're, you know, when you're, when you're a planner like I am. But he really um, taught me to kind of just get to know him. That was the most important thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Can I just share one funny story that an interaction that we've had as a couple, Jules and I, with you and Matheson, and I can remember saying to you one time, um, or it might have even been Jules that asked you, "Oh, you know, we're we we're, we're just trying to really work out how do we how do we juggle this, that, and the other thing, and how do we do this and that." And I think your opening line to Jules was, "Well, you know, Matheson and I have got a really interesting." We've got a really easy way of dealing with that. at our At our weekly meeting, when we get together as a couple, we and Jules is like, "No, I have to stop you right there." <laughs> you guys managed to pull together a weekly meeting, like Sam and I can't even. So at that point, we realised we probably needed to ask somebody else their advice. You guys, Sorry, you should see my diary. <laughs> you guys operate very differently to the way we we operate, and we're we're glad for that, and we'd rejoice in it. Yeah, yeah.
1: We, can, Just, we we are thankful for you as members of the body of Christ. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, look, really nice segue, because we'll draw things to a close uh, in a moment. But, um, yeah, the body of Christ, church community, um, that's been really important for you guys as well.
1: Mm, absolutely. I mean, the life and works of Jesus is the best encouragement to me, you know, in my, in my life. Looking at Jesus's... Uh, his, his track record. <laughs> Do you want to yeah. Put it that way. His achievements. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So any any time that I can get together with people and think about that and give time to that is mm. you know is is life giving. Yes. Um, and I think the church community itself is helpful because it provokes more thought. Mm. It forces you to encounter diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, that is when churches are operating the way that they should, right? So yes. when churches are diverse spaces, yes. that um, that is actually a, a blessing, I think. Yes. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, Matheson said once that he, you know, you can go to church and you don't have to agree with everything that's said there. That's, you know, we're all thinking people. yeah. <laughs> like You don't have to absolutely 100% agree with what's said to you, but... If you have enough If you can trust yourself In that space If you trust the people Around you Mm. You can use that As a time to reflect It's provocation Mm. It might inspire you And the spirit Might speak to you So those are the things That have You know Meant a lot to me In Mm. terms of church Yeah Um, And when I've had time I've, I've You know Tried to do projects at church as well um, now I've had to put those portfolios down because <laughs> you can't do everything um, but I also have been it's been inspiring for me over the years to be around people who are motivated by the life of Christ um, because those are some of the most you know, energetic and faithful people that you can come across mm.
0: Got two final questions. Uh, The first, slightly tangentially to this, has been your role on the Parenting Place Board. And you've been on the board since 2019, I think. Uh, I joined the board late last year, 2021. And so I'm the freshest face on there and doing a lot of listening and learning about the work that the Parenting Place do. But you've, Could be a lot of places doing a lot of things. What is it about the work that they're doing that that really animates and excites you?
1: Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love the Parenting Places vision, um, which is to see every child, you know, loved um, and flourishing within their whanau. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of gets at the vision that I have for children uh, in Aotearoa. So it's, it's one thing to kind of work with families on the ground and it's another thing to try and think about the structural factors that, that we could change. You know, we've been talking a bit about child poverty and policy and that sort of thing. Um, it's another thing to think about how do we invest in families and support yes. families. And that's what I love about Parenting Place. Yeah, They're the people yeah. on the ground trying to do that.
0: Yes. There's the, the children feeling loved. I... I not sure if I'm remembering the other half of the mission statement, but it's that, that that parents feel supported in that too. Eh? So yeah. there's an aspect of actually empowering the parents to yeah. do that loving, yeah, as well, like yeah, giving them right. confidence in their in that's their parenting.
1: Right. Parenting is unpaid work, but it's some of the <laughs> hardest work that we do. <laughs>
0: oh yeah, yeah, it really, uh, it really is. As your comment about not feeling prepared for. Children, even through the degrees and postgraduate study of being a mm. paediatrician, you, um, yeah, you get that little life that you feel so responsible for forming. It's, um, it's, it's full on. Mm. And so a final question, Jin, around what you do to unwind and relax. Do you have any hobbies, any sort of pastimes? What do you do to tune out? And the irony of me asking this question is that we're recording this on a Sunday afternoon, so I've probably eaten into any time you had to relax this (laughs) week. Yeah. Oh, so sorry, yeah, sorry. Totally. There's a... There's well, you'll a be te- very
1: glad to know, Sam, that I schedule in times of relaxation. No, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. We're on the
0: spreadsheet. Do you find time to <laughs> no. time to relax?
1: Uh, um, yeah, I think uh, I'm still figuring that out. Okay. I'm learning to relax where I can. Yes, I love swimming. Swimming oh, okay. totally yeah. grounds me. Oh, I'm terrible at it, Sam. I'm terrible at <laughs> swimming. Um, I know that you had Bex Dow on here just, oh, just yes, the last time, so please don't get the wrong idea about my swimming. Swimming, sort of a champion swimmer. Um, but I love the rhythm of swimming, yes, and yeah. the other thing is, I just love spending time with friends. Okay. If yeah. Matheson and I have a night off at the same time, we usually watch a Netflix comedy.
0: Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm plugging in that way.
1: Yeah, that's
0: right. Oh, that's really nice. Well, Jen, look, let's uh, end things here so that you get time to actually maybe go home and watch something (laughs) with uh, Matheson. But look, thank you for coming in. Uh, Really have appreciated chatting with you. And thanks for the work that you've done, particularly the work of the last uh, couple of years as things have really come together in some of the the publicly seen face of what you've been doing but really the the lifetime of work leading up to it but particularly these last couple of years because of how busy they've been uh, and some of the stress of that so so thank you for that work thank oh. you for putting the that time and effort uh,
1: yeah. into doing it pleasure sam you and i could probably chat for a couple of hours more <laughs> <Yeah>. couldn't we <laughs> it's been yeah. fun
0: yeah thanks for coming on